0: Before we start, I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land from which I'm speaking. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. In our daily life, the decisions we make define us and the experiences we have. But decisions are often complex, can involve multiple people, present various outcomes, and call upon judgment and experience. Welcome to the Decision Clinic podcast with me, Paul Gordon, CEO and founder of Catalyze APAC, with almost 20 years experience leading decision-making transformation and author of Hard Decisions Made Easy. Learn how to overcome problems by making great decisions and listen as I sit down with real people to discuss and diagnose real problems. Julia Cookson, welcome to My Decision Clinic. Thank you for coming to bring to me your decision challenge, your decision ailments. You know, really my commitment here today is to give you some freedom in your decision making and and hopefully a diagnosis that you can take away and put into practice, and that'll kind of help you with whatever it is you're dealing with. And I've seen your pre-clinic questionnaire, so thank you for providing that. But I'm really interested to hear, I guess, what ails you and maybe a good place to start is if you can just tell me a little bit about yourself, the context, you know, what, what has you here today?
1: Thanks, Paul. And it's a pleasure to be here. So I am chair of a little company called Project Respect. I was invited to apply for my current role as chair, I think mid-last year, so mid-2021, and joined the board after a recruitment process in November 2021. At the time, I was drawn to the challenges of expanding my experience chairing. And I inherited an experience board that was already in place so it was established but I also wanted to gain more experience in the sector I hadn't sort of played in before. I guess Project Respect is um provides it was founded in 1998 so it's been around a while it's an intersectional and non-faith-based support service for women who find themselves trafficked into the sex industry here And so, I mean, I know from my executive experience with predominantly female workforces, I know an awful lot about, I guess, female-dominated workforces. I've been familiar with mental health, housing, uh, family violence and child protection, for example. And at the time, when I took on the chair role, I was in parliament and I was watching the decriminalisation bill going through the House's I had a few concerns about that piece of legislation because it has unintended consequences for our client base. The unintended consequences for our client base is that the focus of the legislation is to validate sex work as an occupation, but also to elevate access to health support that they don't necessarily or didn't necessarily have. But It ignores people who are not uh, making that decision to enter sex work by choice. So I was keen to integrate all of my background and bring it to solve some of the thorny issues for women who find themselves trafficked or as modern slaves. And I wanted to form relationships with the members of parliament and the government agencies that advocate for our client base But what I didn't realise back then, in November last year, was that sex work has been completely left out of the National Plan for Modern Slavery and the National Plan for Family Violence. So there's absolutely no funding for support services for our client base. And that's been overlooked at every level of government, state and federal. So my role as chair has shaped me in ways that I hadn't really anticipated.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay.
1: I certainly sort of feel myself stepping back into my power as a chair and a female chair undergoing in an organization undergoing a lot of transformation and we're certainly advocating for a fairly marginalized and voiceless client base at the stage which i think i can feel rather than visualize that we're on the cusp of moving the dial here right but we're getting quite strong backlash from some of the advocacy type organisations in the sector particularly one called the Vixen Collective. Their mandate really is to advocate for sex work as a valid occupation and as a career by choice, and they're certainly getting an awful lot of support from Fiona Patton, who's a Member of Parliament in Victoria. So they don't have a clinical practice, which we do, and they don't accept our focus on trafficking. They don't think it's valid or required. And to me, you know, this is a billion-dollar sector,
0: A billion dollars.
1: A billion dollars in Australia earned from trafficking, which I think is huge. And I don't think many Australians would understand that that's the size of the industry in their backyard. So I guess the problem I'm facing in there as chair is that Project Respect is facing a fairly tight funding situation. I think that's been caused by our failure across time to position itself consistently in a fairly fractured sector anyway. We haven't really focused on the experience of our specific client group consistently. So they're largely women who come from the subcontinent, Asia or Eastern Europe, and those are the backgrounds. Their visa status is fairly precarious. I guess across time, what the organisation's done when it's faced a funding shortage is that it's chased the grant dollar or chased the funding dollar. And really at those points in time, I think it's lost its way and it's caused the organisation to lose its strategic focus on our specific client base or what we're there to do. And I think that's led to us confusing our clients, confusing the funders and the sector around what we are, our positioning and what our service offering is. So our core decisions, I think, are are we still relevant and to whom? And are we sustainable? that's the
0: problem. Goodness, a naughty problem. And, you know, one of the things that I always say in decision making is that context is everything. And so, you know, thank you for providing some of that context around the different aspects of legislation that sound like their intention against what you're up to achieve. And I can imagine, so perhaps just to kind of question for you you know that tension does that is that what's also making the funding situation less certain or less confident as in if you're against one piece of legislation or in favor of another i'm just interested in in some of the factors that are driving the challenge of your decision i suppose
1: i think yes yes and So certainly if we go back to the shaping of policy, the people who have done the research and are creating the policy positioning for state and federal government have not paid attention to this segment of the population in Australia. Now they used to. So when the national plan for modern slavery moved to, oh, I think it was there's a new um, national plan 2022 20, to 25. The previous one um, certainly worked with the NGOs and they had line of sight to this cohort of client. When it's moved now, the focus of that policy and that subsequent legislation has been corporates checking their supply chains.
0: Right, yeah, yeah.
1: To make sure that there's no modern slavery in there. So the focus went off the victim and onto the corporation. So I think that it's been an unintended um, outcome of people shaping policy without actually knowing what they're shaping. And then it's gone into legislation. In Victoria, it's been picked up by people who are wanting to validate sex workers an occupation and have access to health, which is fine. We're not saying that that's... As an organisation, we're not saying that that's a career you shouldn't or couldn't have. What we're saying is that the, there has to be choice in that and for our client base there's no choice. So I think it's been an oversight rather than deliberate. And I know from talking to some of the, you know, government departments in Victoria and for we've obviously talked to border security agencies and so on and the federal police, they're like, oh, <laughs> Big, big oversight.
0: As a decision doctor, I'm always listening out for decisions and I can hear in, in, in that scenario, in that world, you've just painted for us the lots of different decisions that have been made on the way. Many of which, as you say, have unintended consequences and just to speculate and to kind of shine a light on a couple of things, I can hear the decision that says, well, the focus on modern slavery is focusing on the corporates and managing their supply chain. You might say, well, and speculation, I don't know, but what drove that as a decision might be, well, the way we can have the biggest impact is corporates because they're going to pay attention. They're going to take some action. So as you said, not a victim focus, but a focus on shifting behavior. Which might not achieve the ultimate outcome that you want, but at least see some action taken. And therefore, another aspect of that decision might be seen to be doing something. Yes, we're seen to be doing something. We can cause it in supply chains. We can cause corporates to have to examine their supply chains, etc. Those are all good outcomes. And it's not a question of a good or a bad outcome. And it's missing something. and then you end up with this risk of unintended consequences. And certainly what helps better decision-making is before you actually make that kind of decision, really look through all the consequences. What are all the consequences here? What are the trade-offs that if we take that course of action, it might drive, oh, this thing that we hadn't thought about. So that's just something I can inhere in what you're saying. The same with the legislation, the same in the, uh, in the legislation for decriminalizing sex work is entirely positive intention, yes freedom, access to healthcare, really empowering, I guess, empowering people to make that choice and missing, as you say, the sort of consideration that says, well, there's a fundamental assumption in there. And this is another thing in decision-making. Often we make our decisions built on assumptions that are not written down or articulated or not even made explicit. There's just an assumption. Of course, the assumption is, yeah, people have made a choice to enter this industry. And what we're trying to do is, who are we to say, no, you shouldn't do that. So yes, let's, let's open the door for entering that industry via choice without an assumption well let's test that assumption because actually the assumption might be there's a whole and and this is your world I guess there's a whole cohort that aren't entering that industry by choice but now they're in that industry they're now covered under the umbrella of sex workers and what's missing there and and I guess I can hear the challenge with the advocacy groups again coming from a perspective called empowering women giving freedom of choice all very important outcomes and but then operating against the the sort of Maybe you're not acknowledging or missing the impacts. And, you know, that's, uh, that's, again, so two common things there in decision-making, and I just sort of illustrate this partly from people listening, but also to see how this shapes your sort of foundational decision, is that, you know, what are the factors? The unintended consequences are often factors in decision-making that are missing. And then what are the hidden assumptions that decisions are based on that in, if we're not prepared to challenge those? or And actually, I don't want to be as provocative. It's not necessarily not prepared. It's just not visible. They're invisible assumptions. We hadn't noticed we'd made that assumption, and sometimes they only become clear when... When you start to see the consequences and say, well, yeah, your assumption is that women enter this industry willingly. And you have an entire cohort that says, well, we didn't, but now we're caught up in the decriminalization of this, which means I can also hear, again, back to context, right? As soon as you create a context called decriminalization, that's a big word that can easily spill over into, well, actually, there's no question that trafficking is a criminal activity, But the consequence of tracking called sex work sort of fits into this decriminalization. Oh, how does that look? So I can see there's some also things that start to get a bit muddy inside of this as as decision making. Now, that's all about the decisions that have already been made about legislation, about the focus of attention. Sort of drilling into into your specific situation and the the situation of project respect. I'd just like like to kind of maybe try to, to shape the decision a little bit because part of what really works in decision making is having very clear our decision outcome. The two questions you said were, are we still relevant and are we sustainable? Is that, that what I heard you say? Yeah. So how might that look like a decision? Because sort of sustainability might be an outcome from a decision. A decision might be we take a course of action that has a sustainable or not sustainable. And so it might be, and um, this is a question for you just to kind of uh, see what's going on, is the assumption that kind of the status quo is unsustainable and therefore there's different courses of action we need to take to be sustainable? Is that where you're coming from?
1: Yeah, that's where I'm coming from. I think the other thing I'd call out, which we haven't sort of touched on, is around the interface with family violence. Right, Because the coercive control is now criminalised within that space. And we would consider that our client base is probably at the tippy-tip end of, of gendered violence and a lot of our cohorts. So we can segment our client base into women who are picked up overseas and deliberately trafficked and then women who mm-hmm. are in arranged marriages or purchased brides that end up here and then are sold into this work effectively by the family that they end up in. Right. So those are the two lines. And I I guess in both cases, there are structural problems. So if we go back to your question to me about sustainability, yes, I agree that financial sustainability is the outcome, but it sort of feeds into Are we as an organisation still relevant to that client base and can we as a discrete entity serve that client base or should we just amalgamate into another non-faith-based organisation and become part of a bigger collective? Because at the moment our women are not being necessarily easily picked up. So I guess... We have an education component, um, one, educating the general public, educating the border security and the other agencies and corporates about what to look for. Right. What are the signs of someone who might be trafficked? Because they're not going to tell you. (laughs) They can't tell you. (laughs) They don't go to the police because they don't have relevant visas. And so they're deliberately terrified. So I guess the thing is, in terms of sustainability, it goes into not only the financial outcome, but can we as a small organisation keep this going and to whom?
0: Again, I can hear another decision there. So as you say, if you you look from a victim perspective and say, well, there's a decision about do I come forward, do I go to the police, do I talk to my employer about the situation? And I can hear some trade-offs there called, well, if my immigration status is tenuous, then the decision called if I come forward, the consequences might be me being deported or whatever. So, oh, that's tricky. Or the consequences might be literally deadly for me if I come forward and someone in my environment finds out the, the violent situation could escalate. And the reason I point to some of those things is that the, the sort of environment in which we're making decisions is, of course, in itself a, an environment that has other decisions being made and sometimes understanding those decisions that are going on. It helps give us clarity in the decision that we're making in the midst of that, so we can see some of the tensions that are at play elsewhere. And it was interesting you said this, because when you said financial sustainability, but actually when I hear sustainability as a piece in a decision outcome, it can look like many different things. It might be simply critical mass, or it might be sustainable against uh, an environment that's pushing back against us or. I guess a broader view of sustainability. What I heard there, and, and and sometimes this can help us. So maybe this is a thing for us just to explore for a moment, is what might some alternatives be? So if we said one alternative is kind of just carry on exactly as we are, okay, well that might feel, let's say, unattractive or unsustainable or or um untenable, but at least that's there as a course of action. Another course of action you just said there was. Maybe we amalgamate with something, another organisation that's non-faith-based, so has a similar, let's say, value set or, or intention. What might some other alternatives be? Put one into your mouth that we often don't want to consider, but I guess to turn the whole thing off and just say we're done.
1: That has been one of the items on the table for the board to consider. We have laid out timeframes for ourselves in terms of when we would reach decision gates like that, To me, it's more around um, at the moment the decisions are going to be let's consider non-government funding. Okay. Let's reach out into more um, consistent type funding, whether that's through – philanthropic support for our research because we've got one entity in Australia or one organisation in Australia that has deep research in this area, apart from the uni. Okay. I think that we haven't tried to get philanthropic funding for that sort of work before. We could go down the um, pathway of social enterprise or um, I think those are sort of problematic and require scale that we don't have. But we could also start looking at um, utilising a volunteer base more than we do. There's lots of different ways of getting scale because, to me, the critical decision about folding up yes, or winding yeah. up will be about money. We're not there anytime soon, but I always like to keep that in mind when you're dealing with an organisation that's got to transform and turn around quite rapidly. To me, I think that we need to think about sustainability in scale. We are doing the women involved in in this part of the sex industry a complete disservice because we're not big enough. We need to scale, we need to partner, we need joined up thinking with other entities to be able to deliver or reach out to other organisations and they need to be educated about what to look for. It is a capacity issue. How do we get capacity? That's the big challenge at the moment. Do we go down the volunteer path? Do we go and partner with other agencies working in this space? I don't like to think of these things
0: as an either or. No, no, no. The
1: generosity in the end, Paul.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's um the often my challenge, of course, is I have a view of the world called decision. So I like to kind of help us get some shape around that. The, re- the real world often, of course, looks quite different. So yes, it's one thing to say. A discrete option is philanthropic funding. Another discrete option is uh, a volunteer workforce. And of course, some combination of the two might be the right answer. And actually in decision-making, it helps us to kind of be a bit hypothetical to draw some, let's say, artificial boundaries between options so that we can see what feels attractive. And then if we see two options that feel attractive, maybe it's that combination. Because one of the things that often helps us by thinking hypothetically distinct is, well, if I just said to you, for example, what might make a volunteer workforce approach attractive? Let's, let's say there's no philanthropic funding. You, you remain funded by. Government grant or whatever, and you take on a volunteer workforce. If I asked you what was attractive about that as an option, some of the things you will learn about thinking just about the attraction of a volunteer workforce could then spill over into, oh, well, actually, if we had philanthropic funding as well. So that's, that's just how I like to help my patients think about the decisions that they're making. And of course, I'm not naive enough to think that, you know, the world, the real world actually comes at us like do X or Y or Z, and that's the only choice. It's often very much grayer than that. So. It's really interesting to hear that. One thing you just said there, which I just want to test, so an assumption I can hear behind this is actually the assumption is scale. Just say a little bit about why you think that's the case. And often I ask questions of my patients that sound blindingly obvious, so (laughs) forgive me for maybe asking you a dumb question.
1: (laughs) Why do I think that scale will help us? Because we appointed a new CEO in Carolyn Gower's, it's her name. Carolyn's doing an excellent job. She must have started about February, I think. And between Carolyn and, and I, we're opening doors to the different government departments at federal and state level, and she's attending a lot of the conferences and things. And we just cannot physically get around it all. And also, you know, the national plans are currently being um, reviewed. So we're really keen to get out and about and engage in sector discussions. We're getting into that space where everybody's realising that this cohort have been left out, forgotten about and are having a moment. There's also suddenly a realisation amongst the policymakers that this um, is a billion dollar sector for criminal activity. So they're all going, Oh We need more people on the ground to be able to advocate at grassroots level, at state and federal government level, and then at secretarial level in the departments. We just don't have enough people that can speak to that level at the moment and then also deliver services. So one of the things that we are being asked to do more and more is provide education into border force, the federal police, the family violence providers, they start to become aware that they're missing signs, that they're missing. Most of our clients have actually been trying to engage at some level with a system for very long time and haven't been picked up and haven't been recognised for being trafficked. My assumption is that we need more capacity than we've got to be able to reposition ourselves and pull ourselves back into the position that we used to occupy. Because if we don't, we could just go and join another, an orange door or a one respect or a, one of those agencies and become a specialist unit within one of those.
0: That sounds like another option. And I can hear just in your voice that that doesn't sound very attractive. So what about that? Because often looking at decision-making from what's not attractive helps us as well. What might be some of the reasons why that doesn't feel like a good way forward?
1: Well, having worked in the providers myself, I think that the danger of being absorbed into a bigger provider like that is that at some point in time, you, you know, you might end up the victim of a service review. It's hard work. It's not necessarily going to spin a buck for a provider. So, okay, we can't do this anymore, let's just shut that service and that to me would be an absolute disaster. That's my hesitation. I've seen it happening enough, having worked in, you know, across aged care and disability and, as I say, family violence and so on. It depends how well funded the sector is. And at the moment, family violence and mental health are fa- fabulous. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. um, that doesn't necessarily stay that way forever. And that's not necessarily all the problems for this cohort. You know, there's housing, there's child protection, there's often um, employment pathways into other employment. There can be family violence, there can be all sorts of things that we triage and and at the moment triage and allow people to go off or redirect into the services that each case needs as we case manage them. If you get integrated into a bigger provider, can you meet all the plethora of needs that somebody might come? And the answer is generally no. That's not how these providers are generally set up. You would be Narrowing down the offering and becoming less effective. Right. So that's my hesitation. It's still an option, but it's not a great one to me. The better option at the moment is a partnering arrangement with some of the bigger not-for-profits that provide supports to call communities, particularly if they're you know refugee or immigrant type client base in there as well. That would be another sort of middle ground option. My preference, of course, is that we actually start getting funded properly for this cohort and real attention get paid to it. And let's get real about the severity of this sort of stuff happening in our backyard for people, largely women and their children, who really don't want to be here doing this.
0: Thank you. And that's really helpful to explore that because what that just to me from a decision making shines a light on a key concern for you or or what you might say one of the outcomes you want to achieve in a decision a good a good outcome has some sort of long-term longevity to it it's not as you say where you're at risk of a service being turned off that doesn't help that feels like a poor result so therefore an an attractive option looks like something that has a long-term game so that's what in decision making i'd say you want that feels like it's one of the criteria and you making a choice
1: it is, and I think we have a, not even a formal partnership. It's been more a, a casual relationship where um, there's a, a philanthropic um, organisation that supports this sort of work on the ground in India, and I attended one of their functions, and I was shocked, Paul, to hear that in India, in the rural parts of India, a girl over 12 years old now is trafficked every three minutes. And that's our client base here. That's exactly who comes here. And so they're at that front end of the pipeline and we're dealing with the back end of the pipeline. We can't sit here thinking, oh, this is just not happening in Australia. It's absolutely happening in Australia. So I want to have all of the decision makers and policy makers at government level Acknowledging that this is actually something happening, we need to do something about. I don't expect us to get all the funding for it, but I would like somebody to stand up and listen. It's silly, well, not. To.
0: And some of that is another way we can look at this which may be for an, another consult, but is the, were we standing in the shoes of the policymakers in federal government or state government? What decisions they're making that has this not on the agenda, there's a place to influence, right? That's the, how, how would we have them make decisions in a better way that actually accommodate for what we're dealing with so that we don't end up with things being, you know, the unintended consequences that we started this conversation with. What I'm doing here is just seeing what are the drivers that would make a feel like a good way forward for you. And sometimes, you know, the way forward might be blindingly obvious. You know, I can hear where your preference would be. But once we can make a decision, we can start to articulate why it's a good outcome. That then gives us a basis for a conversation for taking that option forward. If you're quite clear that, you know, so one thing I heard was it's a long-term game, so it doesn't work just to go, well, I can do something short-term, right? Well, that that sets us up for an attractive option is something that needs to have some life to it. I heard you talk about the issue with the service provider is that narrowness and what actually is important from a victim perspective. Am I using the right language, victim? Is that how you do some more client? We
1: tend to call them clients.
0: Yeah, that's why I want to make sure I'm speaking to into what's actually in, in front of us. So from a client perspective, you might say, The sort of breadth of what you can provide is important to them. So you're also an option that allows for that breadth so that they don't have to go, oh, it's a housing thing. Well, don't talk to us, go somewhere else. So you want that from a client perspective. I can then hear another perspective, which is when I hear scale and and your challenge of scale, I can hear firstly scale, that longevity scale, the long term scale. So that's scale over time. I can hear scale in the breadth of service you provide to clients is a numbers game. How many clients can we work with and provide for? So there's scale there. And then I hear scale in probably two other places, scale in the advocacy piece. In other words, without scale, the voice gets lost in the wind. And what we need is, is more voices. And as you said, you know, when you look at yourself and there's only so many conversations you can have in parliament, and actually with 10 or 20 or 50 of you, that's a different kind of voice. So there's a scale there and then there's another scale which is the scale and i and i can hear maybe two things in here you know this is just me playing back what i've heard there's the scale in the Say, working with Border Force and so on, in the opportunity to communicate and have and move it up people's um, awareness so that actually we are there's sort of catching people that's part of it. So that's the Border Force thing. And then there's, of course, supporting them, which is that breadth of service that you need. And there's probably another piece. And I guess maybe the Border Force is similar. I guess there's also an opportunity for much wider impact, not just Border Force, but it is the corporates, it is the so and so, the same sort of awareness and communication and education that you're providing probably has an impact there. So you kind of need to achieve scaling for different outcomes. And then the net outcome overall is what I can hear is kind of two core things. One is, of course, addressing the needs of the client. And the other is, of course, that I guess preventive measure called awareness and impacting policy and driving change up there. And all of that's a long game. It's not an immediate. It's not a short term game only. Of course, there's a short term gain. Someone presents with a need. We need to address that. But then there's the long term game that feels like three clear dimensions of what a good. Outcome would look like it's got to have longevity, it's got to have breadth of service offering, and it's got to have scale of voice or or you know visibility, something like that. Does that make sense in terms of how you're thinking?
1: Yeah, that's exactly how I'm thinking about it. You've encapsulated it so much more clearly than I would.
0: <laughs> and of course, my, my my job here is is mostly just to you know shine a light on certain things we can't see. And also to help test assumptions, and it's you know it sounds like your assumption called scale is playing out in all of that. So you can see that's a, that sounds like it's a meaningful assumption for you. It's not a. Uh, sometimes we have furfy assumptions that oh, actually that really doesn't make it uh, have an impact here. And I'm conscious of our consultation slot, so I, I I hate to be the doctor that sort of says oh our time's nearly our time to move on. To the next the next patient's uh, waiting. And, and I've heard you have a range of options as well that you can consider ranging from, often these things are blindingly obvious when you sit and pick them apart a bit and then look back at it, that I probably identifying those three key area of outcomes, and probably with a longer conversation, we drill into those a bit more, that will have you see maybe some new options. So that partnering option, you might say, well, that might put us in a certain direction of partnering. Who might we partner? It's not going to work if we just partner someone that is dealing in a certain narrow cohort because breadth is something that we care about, and we need to be able to address that. Or if we're going to partner with someone that's got a short-term game, well, that's probably not the right partner for us. So it probably help you sort of pick apart who would we talk to. And also, I can hear that if that sort of philanthropic way of funding, so if we just look at the money side of things, then that's starting to give you even some criteria as to where you'd look for that money, that conversation. Who's interested in a game that needs to have high visibility? Who's interested in a game that needs to provide a breadth of options for or support for clients and is a, is a client-centered, holistic kind of solution? Who's interested in funding things that actually are going to be a long-term outcome because they're not just interested in giving the short-term ROI? Seeing that can probably point you in some directions of some options. I
1: think
0: so. Have I missed anything or is there anything else on your mind? But uh, but I I am conscious that the clock is ticking. I'm sorry.
1: Start writing the script. Yeah. <laughs> Get that in the printer. No,
0: I exactly, think that's yeah.
1: perfect, Paul. I'm really happy with that is as, um, as where we've landed. I think it's um, summarized some of the decision gates for me really, really well. And I think it'd be helpful for people listening as well to sort of hear hear my conundrums and have you analyse, dissect and put them into really clear pieces of work for us to go away and, um, you know, map out. Maybe what I need to do is come back with our homework of how we've gone and done that.
0: And certainly, I very much welcome a follow up consultation to see how the prescription's playing out. This is a, a really interesting example of decision making where the topic, the impact you're having on the world is kind of undisputable. It's not like there's anyone going, well, this is why are you doing that? It's nonsense. This is irrelevant. You know, as soon as you say a billion dollars, you start, you know, every three minutes, those numbers are, it's clearly a really important thing you're doing. And the challenge sometimes is that level of significance and importance can get in the way of being able to make some decisions. It's, it's just like we can't see past the significance of the work that we're doing, so Absolutely. so look. Thank you for bringing this to me to have this conversation. When it you know sometimes I'm sure it must occur to you to sit back and put your feet and go, it's all too hard, and it's so important, and just literally sit there crying in the corner, going, "What do I do?" I'm glad you've come to this uh, clinic today.
1: Thank you, Paul. I'm really grateful that you've given um, me the opportunity to do that as well, because um, you're right. For all of us on the board, it's quite challenging because obviously we're uh, we've got a passion for the work and uh, and we've got a hairy thorny problem in front of us so it's a good group but thank you
0: thanks so much for coming in Juliet. good luck let me know how you go
1: (laughs) will do thanks
0: thank you for listening to the decision clinic podcast with your host me paul gordon ceo and founder of catalyze apac and author of hard decisions made easy If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to click follow for all future episodes. And for additional information and resources, check the show notes or visit me and my team at catalyzeapac.com. I look forward to welcoming you to the Decision Clinic again soon.